and welcome to this special episode of Media Voices. I'm Esther Thorpe, and this episode I'll be speaking to some startup founders in the US about finding a model to save local news. The narrative that local news is dead is widely accepted in the media industry. Following decades of cuts and decline at once lucrative newspaper organisations, it looks like the rise of digital advertising has cut off local news's main source of revenue, and publications have struggled to adapt. But over the last few years, there have been glimmers of hope. Although there are still vast news deserts with no coverage, startups are springing up to fill the gap. And I'm not talking about Axios and their noble pledge to save local news through newsletters, although this in itself is a sign that there are opportunities. There are many smaller publishers which get far less attention, but which are on the road to making the business side of local news work for them. We spoke to four of the participants of the most recent Google News Initiative Startups Lab about what drove them to start their publication, what their focus is, what business models they're choosing to use, the challenges of starting a media business, and what they think the future holds for local news. But first, I asked the startup's programme lead, Connor Crowley, why local news has got into the situation in the first place. You know, to drastically oversimplify the problem, you know, as circulation and print advertising revenues have declined over the years, you know, there's been downsizing and closures of newsrooms. That's kind of, that's become somewhat of a constant. And I think the news consumer has felt this. Either there's a decline in the volume or quality of the local coverage, or else there's a complete shuttering of a local news source, uh, you know, and, and a news desert might be created. But even in cases where the local legacy newsroom is still standing, you know, given that downsizing and unmet information need very often still exists, and I think for the most part, these digital startups, they're really just responding to that information need. Like It's not that people have suddenly stopped caring about where they live, far from it. Uh, you know, There are communities of all shapes and sizes out there who are very hungry for local content. Um, and in fact, you know, the vast majority of founders who we work with are themselves and were themselves concerned community members who wanted to do something positively contribute to the area they live in and, and the people in it. Nissa Ree and Michelle Carner are the founders of Borderless, which serves the immigrant communities of the Chicago area with essential information. They also hire and train freelance immigrant journalists. Nissa explained that Borderless actually began as a rapid response media project back in February 2017 and has grown from there. It was not intended to be a long-term newsroom or a business or anything like that. It was really just a response to the Muslim travel ban and the media coverage that we saw going on around that issue and immigration in general in the Chicago area and also nationally. So it came from a desire to really change the narrative around the travel ban and around immigration and really uplift the voices of the people most impacted by the ban and immigration policy, which are immigrants, of course. And so we started with this value that immigrant voices are powerful. They should be at the center of any sort of coverage about immigration and immigrant communities. And uh, we ran with it. So after starting as really just a short-term temporary project, we learned, you know, there was a big hole in our ecosystem here in Chicago when it came to immigration coverage. Really, our big players here in Chicago didn't have people who had backgrounds in covering immigration, didn't really know uh, how to do it well. So we saw an opportunity and we ran with it. Husband and wife team Josh Bruce and Ramona Goagas are both San Jose natives. 
Ramona had worked at Aldenone Mercury News for some years as a journalist covering politics and government. But following multiple rounds of cuts and layoffs, the two decided to launch their own local news organisation in January 2018. Both of us are San Jose natives. We were raised in San Jose, grew up in San Jose, went to public schools in San Jose. And we would always hear from our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours that, you know, they really wish that there was another source for local news, for local journalism. And we decided that we are the right team to start that news organization and to fill that void in local news. So we did it. And now uh, that was in 2000, January of 2019 that we launched. And, and it's, been a, it's been a great adventure since then. And we worked really hard to sort of create, a, you know, a following and a readership even before our website was actually live, before we even launched. Um, some of the ways we did that is we had a newsletter, a very popular newsletter. We had all of our contacts, Josh's contacts working in politics and government. He's been in the in Bay Area and in the industry for over 10 years. So we had a lot of contacts. I had contacts from my days at the newspaper. So we, we basically put all those contacts into a list and began sending them stories that we were writing uh, and building, you know, a readership and building loyalty with readers even before the website launched. We did the same thing with social media. We had all of our social media platforms up and running. So essentially, we were we were delivering the news to residents as we were building and creating the website. Yeah, and you know when Ramona came home with the with the vision, you know, with the concept to launch a nonprofit news organization in San Jose, that was in April of 2018. So from concept to launch, again, we launched the site in January of 2019. It was just nine months. Josh and Ramona aren't the only ones to have launched a joint venture. Also in early 2019, Cara Mayberg Guzman started a new local news site with fellow reporter Stephen Baxter from legacy paper The Santa Cruz Sentinel. The new rival, Santa Cruz Local, doubles down on local coverage in the area, filling a number of big gaps. I left the paper and the day after Stephen reached out to me on Twitter um, and said, let's <laughs> start a competitor. And I was like, sure, let's go for it. Um, and from then on, I was, um, you know, working full time on this project. We started as an experiment. We wanted, we had this gut feeling that, you know, people in Santa Cruz County uh, well, actually, we started with a much more targeted audience. Um, we had this sense that people in Santa Cruz wanted um, much deeper and more reliable coverage of the Santa Cruz City Council. Um, and we also had this other <laughs> gut feeling that people wanted their news through a podcast because we have tens of thousands of commuters in our county who drive an hour to Silicon Valley for work. Um, so we thought um, we'd <laughs> try a little podcast about what happened last night in Santa Cruz City Council to see if it would stick. And it did. People really liked it. We started a really informal newsletter right after just <laughs> from my Gmail account, um, just a newsletter to let people know that we were publishing these podcast episodes. And that eventually grew. People wanted more of it. And so we built a website and um, <laughs> eventually, uh, you know, grew our products and our scope um, to what we are today. The Mendocino Voice founders, Kate Maxwell and Adrian Fernandez-Bauman, also met whilst working at Legacy Newspaper in the county. They spotted an opportunity to take advantage of the possibilities in digital, which weren't being used by the local papers. 
in 2016, the Mendocino Voice was born. Yeah, so uh, there were some really specific topics that we knew were big gaps here locally. Um, one of them was wildfires, you know, because the local papers were primarily focused on specific towns and some of them were only actually publishing once a week. A lot of the coverage of fires was just in the past was sort of this is what happened with the fire last weekend, but it wasn't in any way useful for people in that moment while the fire was happening. Um, another one of the things we really wanted to focus on was actually cannabis coverage. Um, there's a lot of cannabis farming here in Mendocino County. And at the time that we started, it was something that had traditionally been covered just sort of as a crime story uh, where there would be raids by the local sheriffs and that's how the papers would cover it. But when we were starting, that was something that was beginning to become more commercially legal across California. And so covering it like it was actually a regulation and agriculture industry was a really big deal for our audience. Um, and we also really wanted to sort of both address historical distrust around how a lot of the local news coverage had been done by previous reporters here in Mendocino County and create better jobs for people uh, that were actually sustainable um, and you know could support long-term actual reliable coverage for communities here which with Alden had just been increasingly cut back. In many new startups, it is journalists that spot the opportunities and found new publications. But running a business is a very different challenge to running a newsroom. For Kate at the Mendocino Voice, she relished the challenge of figuring out reporting and how she could change the digital news landscape in the area. But the business side has proven more difficult. But I think one thing that has also been a challenge at this point in time is we've there's been a lot of really great things about having these conversations with our readers and talking to people about what local news really could be and what are different ways that we can think about reporting and you know digital news and ways to get information. But I think there's been a lot of different kinds of things we've had to learn, um, whether or not it's HR things or putting all of those workflows and organizational infrastructure in place. Um, or making sure our membership software is working or our tech stack. Um, a lot of things that as starting out as reporters, um, we've kind of had to take on as challenges when we really wanted to be focusing on the editorial side of things. So I think inevitably as a local news startup, um, we're at a moment in the industry where people don't have clear paths that they can offer as to what's the best way to do this. And it's been sort of a process of trying to look at what works in other places and talk to our readers and see what will, we can do uh, as a staff and figure out what's really gonna work for people here. Connor has worked with a wide variety of new startup founders with the Google News Initiative. This business knowledge is something he sees as a frequent stumbling block and is an area he often has to offer support on. Most of the founders who stand something up, they're journalists by trade themselves. 
So they bring a really solid editorial skill set. Like they know what good reporting looks like. They have a pretty clear idea of who their audience is or will be. And you know, they're good at doing the community outreach to, to build engagement with the community. They've got all of that already, but they're typically not as strong when it comes to building out a business and you know, putting in place the operational backbone of when you're trying to, to grow and scale something up. There's a lot, a lot of jobs to be done when you're running any business. And they might be less interesting than the reporting, you know, things like budgeting, fundraising, hiring, etc. But unless you do them and do them well, then you're going to find yourself in trouble before too long. And you can forget about scaling beyond a certain point. So there's an element there of building the plane while flying it. For Nissa at Borderless, the publication started without a long term plan in mind. This is something she's had to evolve and pick up along the way. You know, when we started, we weren't really thinking of this as a business. It was really, there's a need, we're journalists, we can fill this. <laughs> and <laughs> so, you know, my background is as a reporter, I was a foreign correspondent and a radio producer, um, and I didn't have a background in business. So it's really been a big learning process. So I had to learn, you know, accounting, how to do budgeting, how to write a grant, all of these things, there, there was a huge learning curve. For Ramona and Josh at the San Jose Spotlight, they were fortunate that, as a pair, they had complementary skill sets. Um, I've seen these ideas started by folks who are, you know, journalists who have great intentions. They want to serve their community. They want to fill a local news gap, but they may not have sort of the business sense. How do you put together a business plan? How do you apply for a 501c3? You know, the, the basics of sort of running a business. I was very fortunate and blessed that my husband had that experience. Josh had that experience in nonprofit world. You know, he was he knew how to run a campaign. He knew how to raise money. Um, so we have those different skill sets. I come from journalism for 13 years. That's my background. So I brought to the table the editorial skills and he brought to the table sort of the business acumen that I don't have, frankly. I've never fundraised. I've never asked for money before. So he was able to sort of help with that piece of it while I focused on the journalism. But even with founding partners and complementary skills, running a news startup requires the people in charge to be wearing many hats, both on the editorial and business side. Santa Cruz local founder Cara Maber Guzman highlighted this as one of her biggest challenges. It's a scramble. We're constantly juggling, like I'm constantly juggling many tasks. You know, I'm in charge of, uh, you know, leading the vision for the newsroom and, you know, making sure we have enough money in our bank account to, you know, pay the bills. And then, but I'm also reporting on Santa Cruz City Council and staying up late, getting the newsletter together. So it's like, yeah, I guess just, shuff, you know, juggling the many uh, tasks of being a news entrepreneur, uh, you know, of a, a small startup um, organization. A passion for the editorial side of things can be really beneficial in a startup, but it can also be a pitfall. Connor has noticed that as startups evolve within the first few years, too much emphasis on the editorial side can cause major cash flow problems. Having gotten to work with a lot of news entrepreneurs the last couple of years, there are some common pitfalls that we see, which, which are something to watch out for. I think a prime example of one of those is one that's all too common, and that's over-indexing on the editorial side of the business early on. That's typically what the founder brings, right? They're bringing that editorial background and that can come at an expense on the business side if the business side is, is slightly neglected. 
and an early focus on revenue in what we see that early focus on revenue is super super important and going back to project oasis for a second you know we observed that after a certain point in a news business's growth adding on more and more editorial hires um, you know to do the reporting that's actually associated with a diminishing return in terms of the business performance and the business outlook whereas even making one specialist business development hire you know, someone like an experienced salesperson that can have a transformative impact, uh, particularly in those early stages. But even in news organizations of 10 people or more, it's very common for the founder to be the only person with even a part-time focus on making money. From his experience working with early stage newsrooms, he has some advice for making key business hires and getting in the right mindset early on. So stepping back a little bit from editorial responsibility, it can be really, really tough for founders to do that. The publication is their baby. Uh, and if, if they want to stick with the editorial, that's fine. But if they do, then they have to put in place the resources on the business development side as well. Um, because you know the results of not doing so are, are often disastrous. You're talking cash flow problems and running out of runway. So in, in the startups lab, you know, we often talk about creating and cultivating the CEO mindset. That's kind of transitioning from the journalist who founded it and becoming the CEO. It's not always a comfortable journey to make, but it's one that at a certain stage in growth, it's, it's very important to make. Connor also noted that getting the capital together is the biggest barrier many new startups face when it comes to getting through the first few years. It's incredibly challenging to attract investment, meaning that founders have to rely either on philanthropic donations and grants or put money behind it themselves. The biggest one by far, by far, is funding. So, you know, just, just money, paying the bills. We ran a landscape report last year called Project Oasis. And in that, we studied over 700 digital native news orgs across North America. I should note the database of those publishers, the research findings, that's all freely available online at projectnewsoasis.com. But one of those findings was that two-thirds of digital native news outlets were bootstrapped. Right? So they were bankrolled by their founder, and the median amount that they were funded for was about $10,000 in personal savings. So that's really, really hard, you know, to stand something up on such a shoestring budget. Um, And, you know, what that tells us is clear. It's that the funding pipeline for local news is severely strained in North America. And yet North America is probably the best funding pipeline out there in terms of the amount of philanthropic support that's on offer. In other regions, the funding pipeline is non-existent or next to. Money is something Kate at the Mendocino Voice struggled with in the early days. She's passionate about creating the right working conditions for her own staff, especially given the coverage they have to provide. I think we have definitely had, as just a startup without any initial capital, um, you know, we've been, we worked really long hours doing a lot of different kinds of jobs over the first couple years. And so one of our co-founders and we've had left this summer um, and just sort of getting to a point as an organization that we could really offer those kinds of sustainable jobs that we had wanted to build when we started as optimistic and ambitious reporters um, took a couple years to get to. And so I think we are at that point now, um, but making sure that we can continue to really offer 
uh, working conditions in an environment that's supportive of doing the kind of reporting and journalism that we think this community deserves um, is still a work in progress because particularly with breaking news and wildfires, you know, there's just a lot of very difficult things that both being a resident, um, but also being a reporter in that environment uh, is just sort of inevitably something that is needs more support to manage. After having the initial idea for the San Jose Spotlight, Ramona and Josh took a huge leap of faith in order to get the company off the ground. We both ended up quitting our full-time jobs and moving back to San Jose, to the Bay Area, which is one of the most expensive housing markets in the country. I think it's like number two in terms of the expensive rents. So moving back to San Jose, one of the most expensive places, and you know, just not having a, you know, a full-time job, just working on San Jose Spotlight. We lived off of our savings for about six months and everybody thought we were crazy. Our, our parents were really worried about us, but I think we just had so much faith that this would not fail. I mean, we had so much faith in the San Jose community and our city and our, our, our residents that we knew that they would support this and there was no plan B. Like we just went all in because we felt so confident that this would work. Ramona and Josh aren't the only ones who had to dip into savings in order to survive the first year. Cara sold her car in 2019 in order to get enough money to launch Santa Cruz Local. At the start, um, it was very difficult to um, launch and get on the path to sustainability because, you know, we didn't have the benefit of <laughs> millions of dollars in um, seed money we don't even have hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands in seed money. We, um, yeah, my part, business partner, Stephen Baxter worked another, you know, full-time job um, to, and worked on Santa Cruz local in his free time um, at the very start. Um, and I was, you know, dipping into my savings, into my retirement account, you know, <laughs> I sold my car to like build a little bit of seed money to, you know, allow, myself to work full-time on this without pay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a, for founders of newsrooms that, you know, start with no capital, basically, um, that, that can be a huge barrier. It's like, how do you find the time to, you know, how do you create the room <laughs> and like financial security to allow yourself to take this big plunge? Um, you know, we were very lucky, I think, you know, the, the stars aligned for us, you know, Stephen was able to, you know, had the flexibility with his other job. And, um, you know, I was able to piece it together um, personally to allow myself to do this. So, yeah, I know, I know that, um, yeah, I feel very privileged that we were able to, you know, take this risk and, yeah, have the runway to, you know, get the, to the point of sustainability where we're now, like, I, I feel good about our path, our future. <laughs> None of these challenges are new or exclusive to these founders. This means that coming together and sharing learnings can be really helpful in addressing them, as Connor explains. The majority of challenges that local news starters face, I think they're shared challenges for the most part. Like at its most basic level, the journey is to stand up a public available offering, to, to build a loyal audience around it, and then figure out how to monetize that audience. Like the how of the work changes obviously case to case, but the steps in the journey are largely the same. And it's very, very rare that a news organization is taking on a challenge that hasn't been tackled. 
by someone else before, right? Or th that probably has been solved uh, before. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why the Startup Slot cohort approach works well. You know, it gives the 10 publishers that are partaking the network of shared knowledge, the opportunity for shared learning. One challenge that none of these founders saw coming was the pandemic. The effects of the crisis on larger organisations are well documented. But how did these startups fare? Well, the San Jose Spotlight saw a few large philanthropic donors pulling back as lockdown struck. But they saw a huge uplift in support from audiences. So we did lose some donations, but I will say in many ways, the pandemic was also good for, for local news because we saw a huge spike in readership, people turning to San Jose Spotlight, people discovering us for the first time because we were providing life-saving information, you know, how to get a test, where to find a meal, um, what are the symptoms of COVID, um, how do I get a vaccine, when is it my turn? These basic things that, you know, the world was trying to figure out together we were on the front lines of that, and we were really giving people that that education that could save their lives. So we saw a huge spike in readers and, in turn, donations as well as people turned to us during that time. Yeah, actually, in fact, at the end of 2020, we nearly doubled our revenue, you know, from 2019 wow. to 2020. Yeah, you know, solely because of what Ramona just alluded to, that, you know, folks are just so unaware of what was going on, and they were turning to us to give them the information they needed to navigate, you know, their way through the pandemic. And in turn, yeah, they wanted to keep this journalism going, so they all pitched in. At the Santa Cruz local, Cara had more than just the pandemic to contend with. But like many publishers, she also saw a huge uplift in traffic as people sought out vital information. 2020 was a very difficult time for our county. Not, we not only had the pandemic, but we also had the most destructive wildfire in recent history in our county. So um, in some ways, it was a great year for news. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it really showed people that, you know, the need for fair, reliable, accurate information about our county's biggest issues. Um, we actually saw our audience and our revenue skyrocket um, since March 2020. I think part of it had to do with our approach. I mean, we're so, we're small, which allows us to be really nimble and um, you know really pinpoint um, what people need. Um, like for example, um, when the wildfire started, um, we very quickly um, threw up a, a survey um, asking people, what do you need? Um, and people were, you know, calling, texting us and submitting responses to our survey. And we found out, you know, things we might not have realized, like, for example, like one of the biggest needs right at the very start was um, hotel rooms. Where are there available hotels? Um, that take pets, for example, or, you know, have a discounted rate for wildfire, like people displaced by the wildfire. Um, and so we quickly put together a spreadsheet and like updated all of that. Um, and I think really got like put together a very useful um, resource page. And, you know, it, it had attracted so much traffic that our website shut down. Like we weren't ready for the influx of traffic. We were scrambling to, you know, switch servers um, <laughs> uh, during like this one weekend because we were just getting so much traffic. Our membership revenue also, yeah, really skyrocketed during that time. I, I think over the course of 2020, our membership more than doubled. I mean, it was, yeah, 
the so amount of support we got from the community was so just thrilling. Each of these new startups has a clear mission in mind, from what it's choosing to cover to who its journalism is serving. But in order to survive beyond philanthropic gestures, they've all needed to find business models that work for them. All the startups we spoke to for this episode have taken part in a recent startups lab from the Google News Initiative, which is a programme helping publishers find financial stability. I asked Connor to explain a bit about what the Startups Labs does and why organisations like these were selected. So in a nutshell, the Startups Lab is a very intensive six-month accelerator programme and it caters to news entrepreneurs who are post-launch, who have gained a real traction with an audience, but who probably still have road to travel before they could be considered sustainable. And the lab tries to help 10 of them get there through coaching and funding and community. The central question we're asking ourselves here is who can this program be the difference maker for? So we're, we're not really in the business of trying to pick the guaranteed winners here, like a venture capital firm might, let's say. And instead, we want to focus on those who really you know, still need the help and whose survival is not as assured. The other hugely important component for us there when it comes to selection is diversity, equity and inclusion. At the GNI, we're very fully committed to giving opportunity to those drawn from or seeking to serve, you know, communities that have been traditionally underrepresented in media. So just to give you a quick indication, in our most recent program selection process here in North America, over 40% of participants identified as, as a person of color, over 60% identifies as female. Now, Obviously, there are different definitions of diversity beyond just gender and race. And those definitions are, you know, they change as you go to different regions throughout the world. But we always push ourselves to be thoughtful in creating diverse cohorts that can come together, learn together, because ultimately, you know, that's, that's what's going to produce the best results for everybody involved. The Mendocino Voice is the most mature of the new startups we spoke to, having recently celebrated their five-year anniversary. As the business has evolved, they've turned their attention to effectively serving their communities, which in an area as diverse as Mendocino County is no mean feat. Part of what we wanted to do is start building in ways that we're really making sure we are accountable and participating and, you know, really part of the community and having our audience drive what that mix of coverage looks like. And so, um, you know, we wanted to ask people both about the issues that were important to them, and, but also the things that we were missing and the ways that we could improve. And our motto is useful news for all of Mendocino County. Uh, and so that does mean that we kind of have to balance a bunch of different communities and ways that people get their news. Um, but it was reassuring for us in that the types of things that people said that they wanted to get more information about are the types of issues that we are really focused on covering. So, you know, that's wildfires and droughts, but also more solutions journalism focused environmental coverage um, that really connects those issues for people around community resiliency during climate change. Um, there's a lot of these bigger issues around um, you know, health related topics, even homelessness and housing, 
um, that are something that really impact people's daily lives and they want to know about those resources and participate in those conversations, but it's not something that's ever really been covered um, in a comprehensive or even a minimal way by the existing legacy papers. So it's something that we're hoping to continue doing on a regular basis and sort of building in democratic ways that our readers can help us guide our coverage as we scale. Um, because I think making sure that we really have a sustainable model that is supported by our community, both financially and in terms of their trust and participation is sort of what we think is going to be the way this is sustainable long term. The desire to keep news and key information free was shared by all of the founders I spoke to, but that doesn't make reader revenue any less of a priority. Instead, readers are encouraged to donate as a one-off or via membership schemes. It's a very different set of priorities to legacy local news giants who used to dominate the landscape. Nissa explains her position at Borderless. We are Borderless is committed to not having a paywall and having this information accessible because I think, you know, that's part of the reason we started is is the lack of accessibility to some of this information. And um, so that that remains important to us. So as long as we do that, that means we you know we rely on donations and and other things to keep us going. Kate at the Mendocino Voice shares this belief that having the information open and accessible is important. Her priority now is working on making the membership appealing. Uh, we really wanted to make sure that our coverage was not necessarily limited by uh, certain financial interests. So we don't have a paywall at all, and that's really important to us. But we did launch a membership program within the first couple months of starting. And so at this point, we have about a 1,000 members in a county of maybe 90,000 people uh, who give us recurring donations just to support our work. And part of our plan is to be able to offer them increasing ways to participate, whether or not it's in these info need surveys or um, around participatory budgeting really making sure that we're accountable and transparent to our members and readers. Santa Cruz Local is also free, and Cara is firm that this is a vital part of the publisher's mission. They also chose a membership scheme after looking at what was working for other startups. All our news is free. Um, so we have a podcast, an email newsletter, and a website with news stories, and we offer it free to the community as a public service. People can choose to support at different membership levels, starting at $9 a month or $99 a year. You know, if they believe in our, if they share our values and, you know, and our vision of, like, really informing the community with uh, fair and accurate information about what's happening in local government and, you know, the big issues facing our county, um, then, you know, they can support us through this membership model. We kind of cobbled together uh, best practices of what we were seeing in our peer organizations around the country. Um, you know, there's this wave of hundreds of local news startups, um, you know, similar to Santa Cruz Local, um, and many of them do have membership models. Yeah, we looked at uh, you know, research coming out, you know, from the membership puzzle project, looked at, you know, how it's being done elsewhere and sort of imitated <laughs> what we um, thought was working well. But one revenue stream isn't enough, something these founders are acutely aware of. 
most of Santa Cruz locals' revenue comes from these memberships, but they're also supported in other ways. So we're also supported by grants, uh, you know, for example, from the Google News Initiative. Um, we have small grants from Facebook Journalism Project, um, the Solutions Journalism Network, you know, big sort of institutional funders of journalism. Um, and then we also are supported by major gifts, so gifts larger than $5,000. I think our model will always include a a mix of membership grants and philanthropic gifts from individual donors. So right now, um, our monthly recurring revenue, um, you know, the revenue that we can count on each month, which, which all comes from memberships, that covers about 60% of our staff costs. We want to get to a point where our monthly recurring revenue covers our monthly recurring expenses, which is, you know, basically our payroll. So essentially, you know, uh, about doubling, really growing our, our membership revenue. We have about 700 members right now, and we'd like to, yeah, like our next sort of milestone is when we can double the amount of revenue coming from that. Nissa at Borderless is also experimenting with different revenue streams. She acknowledges that what works for one publication may not work for another, especially given the younger audience borderless attracts. And I do have a lot of hope in a kind of mixed revenue model like we're trying to do where where you have not just, you know, foundation grants, because, of course, foundations change their mind and you might not be funded next year but also a mix of that and uh, you know, reader revenue through our membership program. And we're also doing consulting and we also have like a merch store so people can buy borderless sweatshirts or mugs or whatever. And it's really a cool design by an undocumented artist here. Um, and so trying to really experiment and I don't think there's gonna be one model that will work for everyone because our audiences are different. Like our audience looks completely different than the Chicago Tribune's audience, not just in size, but in, in demographics. Like Borderless Magazine's audience is very young. Most of our readers are under age 40. They're very racially, ethnically, linguistically diverse. Um, so you're gonna have a different model for us than, than another newsroom. But I do have a lot of faith in this kind of like mixed revenue model and hopefully it's just a matter of finding the balance of like where can we keep pulling in different money. Kate also recognises the value of a mixed revenue model. She has actually worked out a way to bring advertising into the mix at the Mendocino Voice, something that has been seen as incredibly difficult for local publications to do in the digital age. The other thing that we've done is we have a pretty a healthy mix of advertising and sponsorship and we've also gotten some grants and so we um, are limit our advertising to local businesses who are purchasing by the week um, and we also have sponsorship programs for specific sections and so that means that um, we can make sure we are not driving our reporting solely based on clicks um, and that we're really providing a way for local businesses to reach a dedicated local audience who values and trusts our local news and you know also trusts supporting local businesses of which we are one and so that really means we can 
build a sustainable budget based on the local businesses here that want to support the work that we're doing and the local residents here that want to support the work that we're doing um, and actually you know plan to grow and scale sustainably without needing to rely on large national advertisers or trying to drive clicks for reasons that aren't actually valuable to our local audience. Ramona and Josh decided to make the San Jose Spotlight non-profit because of the changing nature of journalism. They have five main revenue streams to support the publication. So as far as uh, revenue generation, we actually have five different revenue streams and they're diverse streams. Uh, the first is uh, corporate sponsorships and major gifts. Secondly is our reader revenue and sustaining memberships, you know, our monthly and annual you know, memberships like NPR or KQED. Uh, third are our event sponsorships. You know, we hold uh, educational forums throughout the course of the year uh, on important topics that you know face our local community, and we're able to get sponsors to you know to sponsor these events. And then fourth are foundation grants, which we're having better luck now that we're in our third year. A lot of um, you know foundations are more aware of our work, and they trust us, and they want us to be around. And then fifth are is through advertising, but solely in our daily newsletter and our weekly podcast. So that's a growing revenue stream as well. For Borderless, who were initially set up as a short-term project, the need for a longer-term business model came later. They also chose to go the non-profit route. So when we decided to make this an actual you know, business, uh, definitely we felt strongly that it should be a non-profit, uh, mostly because of our strong mission. You know, we, we really see this as changing how our industry covers immigration, not just us doing that work. And so we had a big, strong mission and we wanted to be funded by the people we were covering by our community. So in the beginning, we had a Kickstarter fund, which was great. It was um, so fun to see all the support from our community. And then we've been building on that. So now we uh, have a membership program where readers can donate to us at borderlessmag.org slash donate. And then also we're funded by foundations and we do some uh, consulting work for uh, other news outlets who really want to bring up their uh, game as far as reporting on immigration doing coverage in Spanish or other languages than English, and uh, really pushing themselves to the next level in, in thinking about these issues. Although many of these startups are finding their feet, they're often doing so with shoestring budgets and incredibly limited resources. They're also often working in the shadow of much larger legacy organizations. So why are things like accurate reporting on immigration, making content available in other languages, and vital pandemic information not being done by larger organisations with more resources? The answer is complex, but is part of the reason these startups are succeeding. Nissa from Borderless has some thoughts. You know, some of it is just really basic, like not including uh, the voices of immigrants in your stories about immigration policy. So many times am I reading stories in big outlets about the latest immigration policy and they have a quote from a press release or they have a quote from a lawyer and they don't actually talk to anyone who's impacted by these issues. So often I see people uh, parachuting in. So, you know, I mentioned I was a foreign correspondent in uh, Asia 
before doing this work. And, you know, I see a lot of parallels between the kind of negativity that foreign correspondents can have who are just will fly into a place and uh, do a quick story and then come out and really just, you know, leave the community versus, you know, that that kind of thing is happening when we have immigrant communities in Chicago, <laughs> despite they're just a few miles or they're my neighbors, you know, um, there is this kind of divide that exists. And so it, it does um, come, I think, you know, when we're talking about these big news outlets as well, you know, most people covering immigration in the United States today do not have connections to immigration. Um, they aren't immigrants themselves. They don't have immigrant backgrounds. And so they're coming in with their own perspectives. And uh, we don't see that sort of investment by news outlets in having long-term beat reporters covering immigration. One name in particular kept cropping up as the reason for local news coverage diminishing, Alden Global Capital. Over the last decade, it has grown to become one of the largest newspaper operators in the country, and it has a reputation for aggressive cuts in order to squeeze out remaining profits with no interest in long-term sustainability. It has even been described by some as a vulture hedge fund. Three of the founders I spoke to had worked at an Alden-owned paper and experienced firsthand these strategies, as Ramona explains. You know, San Jose Spotlight was born out of a need for more local news in San Jose, California, which is the 10th largest city in the nation, but um, had just one daily newspaper, a legacy newspaper. And unfortunately, that newspaper is owned by a hedge fund. Uh, that's the story in many other cities across the U.S., that there's a hedge mm -hmm. fund called Digital First Media, and it, it uh, it's owned by a group called Alden Capital. And essentially what happens is they buy these newspapers across the country and uh, and gut the newsrooms and squeeze them for profit and uh, and lay off reporters. So I'd worked at the Mercury News for three years covering politics and government. And during that time, we saw multiple rounds of layoffs, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists who were forced to leave the newsroom, take buyouts. Kate and her co-founder, Adrian Fernandez Bauman, struggled to do their jobs effectively as employees of an Alden title. She explains how many opportunities were being missed at the publication. We had both been reporters at one of the local newspapers here in Mendocino County uh, in Northern California. And all of the, the majority of the legacy newspapers here are now owned by Alden uh, Digital First Media. And so we had both um, had our experiences working for that company and had a lot of frustrations about the ways that that was limiting local news coverage here and how we wanted to both do better coverage that actually served the community, um, but also sort of take advantage of what you could do with all of the different digital possibilities, which were not being employed by the local papers. As local reporters there, we were both getting paid effectively minimum wage, um, and so it was really difficult to do any kind of valuable reporting within, you know, a 40-hour week, and that certainly isn't sustainable in the long term. Uh, so there was a lot of turnover in those positions and decisions around, you know, what the scope of coverage were or um, who, how many jobs are actually in the newsroom and what beats are included 
wasn't in any way accountable to the local community. Santa Cruz Locals founder Cara is another ex-Alm journalist, having worked at the Santa Cruz Sentinel for a number of years. She became the first woman and the first person of colour to serve as the top editor in the newspaper's 161-year history. But with shrinking budgets and staff cuts, she eventually left to fill the growing gaps she saw in coverage. Yeah, the Sentinel is a much larger organization. It's a traditional, you know, daily newspaper. Um, it serves the Santa Cruz County market. We've all watched it decline in recent years. Um, it's owned by Alden Global Capital, the hedge fund um, <laughs> that I know you know about. I yeah, and um, yeah, we've just seen their staff shrink and their coverage of you know civic uh, news, like local government uh, news that you know the kind of news that you used to depend on the local paper for, you know, it's just not as reliable as it once was in its heyday or nor as comprehensive as it used to be. So yeah, we just saw a really wide gap there. You know, we there are other local news organizations in our county, but no one was really covering, you know, that local government beat really comprehensively. Borderless co-founder Nissa Ree believes that in her area, it is the decline of local newspapers like the Chicago Tribune, now owned by Alden, which have really opened up opportunities for founders like her. I think in Chicago uh, in particular, we've seen a, in as the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times, which are, t- are two legacy newspapers here, as they've really been decimated in the last decade or two, They've cut a lot of jobs. They, they've really reduced their coverage. As that's happened, we've seen a lot of growth of new outlets such as Borderless Magazine. And so there's kind of like a blooming of nonprofit news outlets here. I think we're all trying to figure it out together. Um, and I do have a lot of hope. With all these legacy publications in varying levels of decline, many in the industry have written off local news as unsustainable in the digital age. These startups are hoping to prove them wrong, but it's still early days. Connor is optimistic about their chances. I absolutely do think local news can be sustainable. Don't get me wrong, it's a very hard problem to solve, but ultimately I'm, I'm very bullish on it. It's never been more accessible or affordable to launch a news product and get your message out there. You know, Even compared to just a few short years ago, journalism entrepreneurs, they have access to a very wide choice when it comes to the medium for their message. And there's a lot of great tools out there that can help you, you know, discover an audience, understand it, and monetize it. When, when it comes to the digital natives, you know, there's a lot of uh, examples of success that, that are already out there. I would say it's, it's, fair, it's fair to say that, you know, we're, we're still learning exactly what works, what doesn't work. There's not a silver bullet. And I think, new businesses, regardless of any industry, are going to have a very high rate of failure. So there's inevitably going to be casualties along the way. But if we keep learning from those casualties and help news entrepreneurs avoid from making the same mistakes that have been made elsewhere, then the odds of success are they're only going to improve. It will be some years yet before we can see whether any of these four startups have managed to thrive and grow in a way that will set them up for long-term sustainability. But for now, it's looking positive, and they're all optimistic about their chances. Nissa has a vision for Borderless, which will see them expand their model outside the borders of Chicago. 
And, you know, so we dream big. <laughs> we really see a future where journalists are doing a better job covering immigration in Chicago and beyond, and that we as a news outlet can, can grow and thrive and have um, different bureaus in different areas, you know, move beyond kind of the Chicago Midwest area and expand. And I would love to expand into other languages and offer everything we have in, in more than just Spanish and English, but in Arabic and Filipino and Mandarin in particular. And, you know, we're already seeing some success here. <laughs> it's very early. We've only been around for a few years. But in our time, you know, our city has gone from having only one other news outlet in Chicago with an immigration reporter to now there's like two or three other news outlets with an immigration reporter. So I, I think that's great success where we're really leading the way for better coverage, for more human centered coverage. And I, I can't wait to see what's next for us in, in really pushing for better coverage of immigration, fairer coverage, and expanding our work as a news outlet, uh, shining light on the injustices going on against immigrants and immigrant communities. Ramona and Josh are also focused on growth. They want to take their model for the San Jose spotlight and see if it can work in neighbouring cities this year. We're really excited about our future. We think that um, really the growth that we've seen in our first two and a half, three years now have really uh, inspired us to continue growing. And one of the things we want to do is we want to expand our geographic footprint a little bit. So we've been mostly focused, as you know, on San Jose, which is a big, big beat. It's over a million mm -hmm. residents. But um, but we do want to kind of expand out to some of the surrounding cities in San Jose and throughout Santa Clara County. We hear almost every day from residents in those cities that, you know, gosh, I wish you were here. I wish you covered news in my city. I wish San Jose Spotlight would come here and write about this issue. And we always have to say, well, we can, you know, we have a small team and we're focused on San Jose. So I think as we grow, um, you know, God willing, we're going to add a couple more reporter positions and another editor position. And then we're hoping to be able to expand our coverage to some of our surrounding neighboring cities. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a big push in 2022. Kate wants to keep a close eye on the relationship the Mendocino Voice has with its community this year and has plans to ensure they meet the needs of locals. We've definitely had some times of overlapping crises of COVID plus wildfire season plus other things. Um, but we've also been able to grow to what I think is the largest newsroom in our county at this point. Um, and so we are really planning to take a lot of the experiments that we've tried over the last couple years and we've sort of been able to build a pretty good foundation of organizational structure and workflow um, so that we as we scale we we want to expand our spanish language coverage we're going to um, continue to expand our environmental and uh, police accountability reporting and government reporting um, but a lot of our long-term changes are around really building into our structure these ways that we can make sure we remain accountable to our community. So we want to have a sort of ongoing info need survey that might be targeted towards specific locations or groups 
at different points in time, but to really make sure our editorial strategy is keeping up with people's most important community needs. Kate isn't the only one wanting to develop the community aspect. Cara has plans to grow staff and revenue at the Santa Cruz local, as well as expand their coverage of local government. But she also plans to keep sight of what makes Santa Cruz local different, which is their growing community. We really have invested a lot of um, time and work into sort of building a trust-based relationship with our community. Like, I think that's the first step um, as a news entrepreneur is like really asking people what kind of information do you need? Um, what do you want out of your news? What do you wish is more covered? Um, and then sort of letting people, letting your community know who you are and why you do this work. Um, that that has been a lot of our investment, um, you know, that relationship building over the past two years. Um, and I think that's a big part of what sets Santa Cruz local apart and it's a big advantage of local news startups like us is that yeah you have the freedom and ability to really um, focus on what the community needs most. That's all we have time for in this week's special. Speaking to these founders made me feel a lot more optimistic about the future of local news in the US and of course there are some really valuable lessons for other publishing startups from their experiences all around the world. A huge thanks to the founders for taking their time to talk to us and share their stories. They're doing really fantastic work in their local communities. And if you're interested in learning more about any of the publications, we'll include more information and links to their sites in this episode post on our website, voices.media. Thanks too to Connor Crowley from the Google News Initiative Startup Lab for speaking to us. The startups we spoke to today have participated in the North America Lab, but Google run them in countries all around the world, including Brazil, India and Europe. If you're interested in taking part in a future lab, you can find out more information at gnistartupslab.com. And finally, if you're new to Media Voices, hello, <laughs> we release a new podcast episode every Monday where we discuss the week's media news, followed by an interview with a leading industry figure. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a rating and a review, and make sure you're following the podcast wherever you're listening to get alerted about those new episodes. But until next Monday, where we'll be back with our usual format, goodbye. Goodbye.